Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 16th, 2015, and my guest is David Mendel, the Francis and David Dibner Professor of the History of Engineering and Manufacturing and Professor of Aeronautics and Astronautics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is the author of Our Robots, Ourselves, Robotics, and the Myth of Autonomy. David, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Now, you open with the tragic story of Air France Flight 447, and you use the crash and the recovery of the wreckage as symbolic of our interaction with autonomous technology and robots. Uh, why, Why that story, and what does it teach us? Well, the Air France story is a story about a failed handoff where the automation on board an airplane uh, found a a relatively minor fault and um, handed the plane, control of the plane, back to the human pilots too suddenly, kind of ungracefully, surprised them, and then they had lost some of their skills flying too much with automated systems and were lost control of the airplane, which actually was a perfectly good airplane about a minute into the crisis. And so they went from tens of thousands of feet flying through the sky and ended up spiraling into the ocean, tragically losing all aboard. And that's a story about what can happen when automation is in a life-critical system in an extreme environment and the relationships between the humans and the machines are not properly engineered to exchange control in a graceful way. Now, interestingly, the wreckage of Air France was then found by another kind of autonomous vehicle, a autonomous underwater vehicle, and uh, that vehicle was able to do things still under the control of its human supervisors, but that were difficult to do under other circumstances. On the crash, uh, the pilots had thousands of hours of experience. Yeah, the, the pilots were experienced pilots. Um, it was late at night. They were probably a little fatigued. They were probably maybe a little distracted. And all of a sudden, they got handed this, you know, screaming airliner with lots of different alarms, hard to sort through what was really happening. One pilot put, pulled back on the stick. One pilot pushed forward on the stick. The captain himself was actually not even in the cockpit at the moment of the crisis. Um, you know, the accident report... He got there fairly quickly. Total loss, of, total loss of cognitive control of the situation. And that was started, there was a set of protocols that were unleashed because of a, an icing in some of the um, – a part of the airplane, correct? That's right. The engineers who had programmed the system told the computer that it could not fly if there was ice on the pitot tubes. Um, Actually, there are ways an airplane can fly without the data from the the pitot tubes. In fact, unmanned aircraft fly that way all the time, or at least they have the ability to fly that way. But the human programmers had said, if all the data coming in isn't perfect, then you got to check out altogether. And that's basically what the computer did. Which seemed reasonable. uh, Well, it seemed reasonable, although... uh, if uh, 
not if you thought carefully about what scenario you were likely to hand the human pilots in a, in a kind of distress situation um, with a, without too much warning. So uh, I'm not an expert on aviation, but what struck me reading the story, and which I had not read carefully before, is why doesn't this happen more often, or does it, and people just recover su- sufficiently in that kind of situation? In other words, why aren't there alarms set off by computer aut- autonomous computer algorithms that hand off um, control the airplane to humans with a lot of uncertainty about what's really going on? Um, well, at some level, it happens all the time. Um, humans are very good at adapting to these small little errors. The Air France 447, there's no question it was a kind of corner case, an extreme case. Uh, by and large, computerized airliners are very, very safe. They've certainly had a role in the, the tremendous decrease in accidents uh, in commercial airline flight over the decades. Uh, at the same time, the computers are not perfect, and the people are constantly fidgeting around with them, correcting small mistakes, you know, reacting to unanticipated situations. The FAA's study of cockpit automation estimated that the number of commercial airline flights that go exactly according to plan is 10%. Um, And in the rest of the 90% case, there's always some change, change in routing, change in circumstances that the human pilots adapt to. So I apologize to anyone listening to this episode who's downloaded it and is on a flight. But um, I guess even though it's only 10%, most of the time, an overwhelming percentage of the time, that handoff to human control goes fine. That's correct. And, you know, one of the things you can say is you say an increasing number of proportion of airline accidents, it's true of automobile accidents, too, come from human error. And that's true because the mechanical systems are becoming more and more reliable. Um, But we tend to know a lot about accidents. and You have to be very careful about studying these problems just by studying accidents. Accidents get a lot of attention. They get a lot of resources. They're studied very carefully second by second. We know a lot less about normal operations, uh, the sort of everyday thing that happened in the 40,000-plus commercial airline flights that happen every single day in this country. And in those normal situations, people are constantly preventing accidents, again, correcting small errors, correcting small failures, re- responding to changes in situations. And without the people in those loops, you probably have many, many more accidents. Yeah, I recently took a flight where on the outbound uh, leg, the landing was so spectacular that the flight attendant said, that's how you land an airplane. <laughs> and we <laughs> all applauded um, in appreciation. On the return trip, the pilot b- felt like bounced the plane uh, as, as close, as unpleasant a landing as, as I've ever had on a commercial flight. Um, I've obviously not had very many unpleasant experiences, but it was clearly something had not gone correctly. We had no idea what it was. There was silence from the cockpit. I thought there'd be a, sorry about that, folks, but uh, it just, uh, they taxied to the gate and we dutifully, sheep-like, got off the plane. But something unusual happened there that we were unaware of. Mm-hmm. And you, yeah, you just don't know what that is. And you don't know, maybe there was an automatic landing system in one or both of those. Right. And as you point out, uh, there it, and it is the phrase is autopilot, which is of course this is an automated landing can be can be done now um, and take off of course and it's all most of the time would work fine. 
Uh, and what we're going to talk about today, by the way, for those of you listening, is uh, we're going to talk about the role that autonomy uh, plays in the advance of technology and, ro- and robots. And we're going to get to driverless cars and a whole bunch of things. But I'd like to hear about your personal experience, which you which you cover in some detail in the book. I tell the listeners uh, your own involvement in these extreme environments with uh, semi-autonomous uh, robotics. Sure. Uh, the book starts where my career started, which is in the very deep ocean. Um, and I began as an engineer in the 1980s working with early robotic vehicles in the very deep ocean. And at the time, we thought they were going to replace the manned vehicles and move eventually toward fully autonomous vehicles that would just go out and spend months at sea doing their work. And one thing that surprised us right away was that the robotic vehicles weren't cheaper and they weren't safer than the manned vehicles um, for a couple of interesting reasons. But what they did do was fundamentally change the nature of the work. Uh, Woods Hole, which is where I was working at the time, operates still operates a vehicle called Alvin, which is a manned submersible that has, it takes three people in a six-foot sphere several miles down to the seafloor. And when you operate Alvin, you have two Two observers or scientists and then one pilot, they go down at 8 o'clock in the morning. They spend a couple of hours getting to the bottom, spend a few hours exploring the seafloor, and spend a few hours coming back up. And then they return to the mothership and tell everybody what they saw. What we found with a vehicle called Jason, where it descended as a robot, but it had a fiber optic cable connected all the way up to the ship, So everything you saw on the seafloor was relayed up to the ship in real time into a large kind of NASA-like control room. And in that control room, you could have 20 or 30 people experiencing the seafloor altogether. And these would be scientists from different disciplines and engineers and even people from the media. And the experience of exploration changed quite radically. You had a, it was more of a group experience, more of a social experience. And then often you could connect via satellite link to hundreds of people in an auditorium somewhere back in the U.S. or anywhere in the world. And the whole experience changed rather radically. And those were not necessarily things that we anticipated, not the traditional kind of automation replaces the people. What it did do is push the people to a different place and change the nature of the work that they did. The robots didn't do any science on their own. They didn't really do any exploration, but what they've turned out to be really good at is digitizing the seafloor at incredible precision and resolution. And that allowed the scientists to explore in the data from the comfort of a computer workstation, um, often at a time that was even remote uh, by several months from the time the vehicle actually was collecting that data. Talk about how the scientists felt about that, because that that was a very interesting cultural phenomenon. Yeah, there was a lot of conflict over it over the course of the 90s. A lot of scientists felt that you know, remote science wasn't really science, that they really wanted to visit the seafloor. If you didn't actually physically inhabit the place you were studying, it wasn't really the right kind of science, which is interesting because I've dived in, in Alvin and in submarines and you can see very well out the window, but you don't really feel like you're in the place you're looking at. You're encased in a titanium or a steel hull that's protecting you from the elements. So it's, it's remote presence of its own kind. Um, but it took a long time for people to accept that using robots to do remote exploration might actually also be exploration. And that really changed, uh, you suggest, when some of the, the robots were able to give us a peek at some aspects of um, uh, underwater vents and tell us things we really didn't know much about that were really powerful. 
Yeah, there were certainly things that the robots could do you just couldn't do. I mean, just before I joined this group, they sent a small robot, Jason Jr., down the grand staircase of the Titanic that was much too dangerous for a human-occupied submersible to go down. Um, they could get very close to hydrothermal vents. They could also stay down for days and days at a time, which vastly explore the amount of time you get on the seafloor. And so there's a whole set of phenomena that are sort of different. And what, what we also found was that the, the move, the progress was not necessarily toward full autonomy where you have robots that were just going off on their own. You always tried to stay in touch with the robots as much as you could over the course of the 90s and into the 2000s. We did, in fact, get autonomous underwater vehicles that didn't have the cables connected to them. But you still always wanted to talk to them, even if it was only a couple of bits at a time, to keep an eye on them and let them know what to do. And, and then they would always come home and bring their data back, and you'd download the data and, again, explore the seafloor by exploring the data. And those are the kinds of vehicles that found the uh, Air France 447 wreck. Well, I, fi- I find it fascinating that... Um I have to say that I, I like Tom Hanks as an actor, but Castaway is one of my least favorite movies ever. Uh, and one of the things I like least about it is when he names the basketball Wilson uh, or whatever he names. It's not a basketball. It's something he finds. Uh, and I, It's kind of an ad for the sporting goods company. Uh, you know, if I wanted to have a – if I wanted to pretend I had a companion, I'd probably name it something other than Wilson. But uh, I find it interesting that – that these devices that are not sentient have human names, Alvin and Jason. They have acronyms also, of course, which you'll know by heart, and I don't remember from reading the book. But uh, there's a certain, I don't know, affection there, is there? What, what's that like? Uh, Do you think of them yeah, as, in an emotional way? When they got, uh, You talk about when, when Abe died, uh, got an obituary in the New York Times. So talk, talk about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, speaking as an engineer who worked on these systems, I never found them sentient at all. Um, And, you know, in fact, they were really quite dumb, inert pieces of technology. (laughs) And it was always a struggle just to get them to do the simple things you wanted them to do and nothing else. Um, And at the same time, there is a tension between the kind of public conversation about these robots. They were named by their inventors, to be sure. It wasn't something that was added by the press. But there is a kind of um, a break, I think, between the way that the people who are most closely connected to them think about them and the way that the stories get told about them. And, and that's true with the, the, the rovers on Mars as well. Um, you know, the, the, the people who use them even describe them sometimes as robot geologists, even though they don't actually do any geology at all. So the book deals with a different different sets of extreme environments, air, space, water, and, and war. Uh, let's talk about space for a second because you mentioned the the Mars expedition. The uh, We have a tremendous, I think most people have a tremendous romance about space travel, uh, but we've had some terrible accidents. People have died, and so there's a natural impulse toward um, robotics rather than sending people to Mars. Uh, there's this, you know, we're the movie The Martians come out recently. I haven't seen it, but we we like we like the idea of think of traveling to, to other places. But of course, they're extremely hostile. So my question is: uh, Do you see that continuing the use of, of robotics for space exploration? And how much autonomy is there on Mars? So talk about the rovers' um, uh, 
it's not guided in the way that that the submersibles are. So talk about what it's doing that is somewhat autonomous to the extent that it, that it's autonomous at all. Well, so with the rovers on Mars, you have a 20-minute time delay between when the data is transmitted either to or from Mars and when it's received. And that translates to a 40-minute, more or less an hour of time delay when you give a command before you see the results. And practically speaking, for the Mars Exploration Rovers, that turned out to be a sort of once-a-day cycle. They would upload commands and then get the data back. Even given that, there's still a fairly limited amount of autonomy on the surface. The, The vehicles are not making much in the way of decisions on their own. They do some basic internal housekeeping. You know, if they lose touch with back home, they'll go into certain predictable modes. Um, and at certain times, the, the engineers who drive them from the ground will give them some autonomous features to maybe get around an obstacle in the short term. But for the most part, they're still guided from the ground with a fair amount of control. Even when they are autonomous, it's limited in time. You maybe say, Go do this and think on your own for an hour or a few hours or a day or so. Uh, But you really want those things always reporting back home and always under the control of their human operators. That's one of the themes of the book is the ways that autonomy can be very useful, but it's always constrained and it's always wrapped up in a human wrapper of sending instructions and receiving uh, feedback or data. And on the moon, uh, I think, you said all but one or every one of the landings, they turned off the um, the robotics and did it by hand. Talk about what happened there. So on, on Apollo 11, famously about 200 feet above the surface, Neil Armstrong reached up and he switched off the automatic targeting feature. The, the computer and the lunar module were perfectly capable of landing in a kind of fully automated hands-off mode. Armstrong turned off that feature and landed it sort of by hand. He had his hands on the joystick, but it was still a digital fly-by-wire system. All of his commands were going through software, and the computer was aiding him to a great degree in what he was doing. And then after Apollo 11, all five of the following commanders also turned off the automatic targeting at about that point. But they were still heavily dependent on the computer and heavily using these kind of digital fly-by-wire modes. And what was really interesting about that story is that the In the Apollo story, it's one of the lessons of the book as well, is that it was a very innovative, very cutting-edge digital computer, one of the earliest uses of uh, digital computers in an embedded sense, the way we use them all over the place today. And that highest level of technology did not mean that the landing was fully automated. Actually, the Russian spacecraft of the time were very highly automated because they had less sophisticated analog computers. The more sophisticated digital Apollo computers were actually used to create this very rich way of working where the astronauts could turn off the targeting but keep the other digital modes. And that led me to a a conclusion that's throughout the book in all these other environments that the highest form of technology is not full automation or full autonomy, but it's automation and autonomy that are very, very beautifully, gracefully linked to the human operator, where the human can call for more automation as the situation demands it, call for less automation when the situation may not demand it as much, and the sort of perfect balance between the human control and the automation control. That's really the thing we ought to be shooting for, not necessarily kind of closing our eyes and falling asleep while our Mm -hmm. vehicles drive us around. 
I don't remember if you told us in the book, but uh, did Armstrong ask permission? Um, he did not ask permission. He didn't have to ask permission. Um, nobody was all that surprised that he, he turned that automatic mode off, actually. Um, it was something they had all anticipated, and uh, he had the command authority to do that. Because, of course, he's, you know, he's controlling the, the module. You could argue that Houston's controlling him, but they can't literally control him. I guess they could. They could, in theory, have some sort of override built into the system that wouldn't allow him to do it under certain conditions. It couldn't be turned off. Uh, but he made the decision to turn it off. Why did he do that? Why did he – was it, it – you suggest it wasn't ego. He yeah, was you know, when I first started writing about this, I thought it really was ego. But the more I looked at it, the more I talked to people who have actually done it, both on landing the the uh, lunar module on the moon, landing the space shuttle, even landing current-day airliners, which have Autoland, um, you know – these operators who are very highly expert really believe that if they're more in touch with what the machine is doing, they have a better chance of responding to something if there's a failure or some anomaly at the last moment. And that, that again, being deeply involved in these control loops, still dependent on software, still with all the computer aids, still with all the benefits that algorithms can provide for us, but keeping the person involved is something that greatly enhances the reliability and the safety of the system. There are always cases where the engineers who designed the system didn't foresee what might happen. You know, that's what's wonderful about the world. It always surprises us. And the best person to deal with that surprise is not necessarily a programmer working two years before, but the person whose rear end is on the line, who's physically in the environment, who can see what's going on. In Armstrong's case, he, he was worried about the crater that the the, geolo the geography that he was uh, that's not the right word the topology of where he was about to be put right yeah he, he, he could have actually still used the automatic targeting system to get over the crater um, uh, Dave Scott who was the commander of Apollo 15 I think really put it well he said you know I just I came all that way and I I felt like I just needed to be involved uh, for those last moments it was my rear end that was on the line. And again, the computer was beautifully programmed to really uh, help the astronauts, even when they had their hand on the stick in a variety of ways. The, the, the lunar module is physically impossible to fly it in a purely manual way. It had 16 thrusters, and no human could command all 16 of those things in, in exactly the right way. You, you, you so do, you had to fly it through the computer. You need two octopi <clears throat> to, um, yeah, exactly. to, to do it. Um, for some reason, that reminds me of Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm thinking of like, um, you know, an octopus with some kind of uh, genetically modified uh, skills. So let's put that to the side. I, there is an issue of overconfidence there, though, in ego, because uh, I think especially as, as technology advances, there is this, uh, I don't know, a human hubris that, that, that the pilot can do it better. And, and sometimes I guess that's not true. I assume it's not true sometimes, but and that could be a problem. Yeah, I mean, I think in the uh, it's interesting in in the case of the Apollo landings, um, you know, six of six attempts succeeded on on landing, so it's hard to argue with that case. Space shuttle also Small had an sample, automatic but... <laughs> landing feature. Small sample, right? Yeah. But that's what you got. Yeah, uh, it is a hundred percent. It's the maximum the light estimator. Had, yeah. <laughs> the space shuttle two had a uh, 
automatic landing system that our taxpayer dollars paid a great deal of money to get developed and was never ever used, mm. um, although all the space shuttle landings were successful as well. Interestingly enough, if you if you watch the, the first Star Wars movie, which only came out five years after the end of the Apollo program, the climactic moment in that yep. film is Luke Skywalker driving Hang on, through spoiler, the uh, – Spoiler coming. If you haven't seen the first Star <laughs> Wars – uh, you want, want to turn this off because, the, you know, the, the next episode's coming soon and you might want to watch from the beginning if you've been staying. But go ahead. Warning, warning put um, down. Luke Skywalker flying through the trench on the Death Star and uh, at the last moment he turns off his automatic targeting computer and trusts the Force instead. And you see that in a lot of different movies. Space Cowboys, same thing. I think it's um, – um, Tommy Lee Jones turns off the computer and lands the space shuttle manually, and that's that's became a kind of narrative trope in 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 uh, in, in science fiction after the Apollo landings. Um, but it appeals to us deeply. I mean, I think it's I re, I remember that vividly from the movie. In fact, when you mention it, I get goosebumps, and I don't believe in the Force, so uh, I find <laughs> it interesting how that you know t- taps into our. Desire, I don't know what you want to call it, our, our romance about our abilities or about things that can't be explained. Yeah, it's kind of like I'm going to close my eyes and um, and shoot. I, I made the game-winning shot when I closed my eyes because I just relied on my intuition. And there's a part of us that really, that's deeply appealing. Yeah, I'm not a, sure it's, it's stupid. even yeah. <laughs> so much about always intuition as much as the, uh, you know, any automated system is programmed by people. Okay, and those programs embody the people's assumptions about the world, worldviews about the world, models of who they think their user are, um, and to claim that the person who thought the problem through, again, years in advance from the comfort of a cubicle or a testing lab somewhere, has imagined every possible scenario and perfectly pictured every possible thing that could happen – is just a, a false claim. Um, there is not always, but very often, things that happen in the moment that were not anticipated, and um, people are very good at handling those kind of things. Not least of those is other people involved and other people involved in the system. Yeah, I can't decide whether the fact that you're an engineer makes that claim more persuasive or less. Um, <laughs> if you were a coder, I'd be more impressed with it, but. Uh, I'm trying to think of your own experiences and background, how biased or not you are against it. Because obviously these systems – I've written a lot of code for a bit of systems, <laughs> let's put it that true. way. Yeah, I remember now. Uh, but I get – you know, these systems are really the – they're the uh, synthesis of, of code and engineering skill. And of course, as you say, they can't anticipate – the best engineer and the best coder, no matter how smart they are, can't anticipate every situation and – and particularly the interactions that, that you might have with other people that the machinery or robot can't uh, can't handle. That's for sure. Now, exactly. What- I mean, I think if if you look at uh, you know if you want to talk about a fully automated aircraft, okay, take off from an airport, fly even through weather, even with an engine failure, and land at another airport. We solved that problem twenty years ago. That's that's a solved problem. But to try to do that where you take off from an airport where other people are using, other people are flying through the airspace, you're flying over the heads of people who might be at risk if you crash, and landing at another airport where other people are, that's a problem where only 
barely scratching the surface on, the autonomy kind of embedded in a human environment. I call it in the book, situated autonomy. How do we apply these autonomous systems where they have to live in a world where people are? This is the problem the FAA is dealing with, with drones and unmanned aircraft. This is the problem of driverless cars, and it's a very rich, interesting problem, but not a simple one, and not one that's amenable to a very kind of purely analytic solution. You remind me of the only time I've flown in a two-seater aircraft. You know, we lifted off in about five seconds of taxing. It was really exhilarating, and we're floating through the air. It was a beautiful day, heading, uh, it was about, a, I don't know, maybe a 150 or 200-mile flight. Uh, the person who was flying the plane was actually a coder. <laughs> and as we got up in the air, I said, so, sort of nonchalantly, so how do we keep from uh, crashing into other planes? And his answer was, you know, I was looking at the instrument panel, trying to figure out what he was using to avoid a collision. He said, well, you look around. I thought, okay, I guess I'll pay more attention. Um, now, you argue that true autonomy is a myth, and we're living in a time where there's an immense amount of excitement. They were on the cusp of good and bad kinds of autonomy. Uh, why, do you, why do you say it's a myth? Uh, why aren't we going to get there? Uh, you suggest we're only going to get there. Uh, it's an asymptote. It's not a, a, a destination. Well, I didn't say true autonomy is a myth. Say full autonomy is a myth where there's no human involvement because we have yet to build a system that there has no human involvement. There's just human involvement displaced in space or displaced in time. Again, the coders who embed their worldview and their assumptions into the machine or any other kind of designer, every last little bracket or tire on a vehicle has the the worldview of the humans who built it embedded into it. Um, for any autonomous system, you can always find the wrapper of human activity, sending out with instructions, coming back with receiver, uh, with data or other things that, that the thing has. Otherwise, a system isn't useful. Um, so to begin with, full autonomy is an asymptote that way. Uh, but again, full autonomy, as in the aircraft case, that's the easier case than autonomy in the human world. Autonomy is situated and responsive to all the complexity of living with other people around. And I think that's really the, the, the ultimate goal we should be working toward. It's very challenging. The Air France crash case gives you one of many cases of things that can go wrong in that situation. Um, but we really ought to be thinking about achieving that perfect balance between the human and the autonomy because it's going to be there anyway, right? Um, and there's a, a bunch of stories in the book, including the story of the Predator uh, drone, where it was designed according to a, a, a sort of dream of full autonomy and at great expense and great difficulty for everyone involved that ended up having to be embedded in the human world like every other system. Yeah, I think we have a lot of um – well, I know I have some misunderstandings about what drones actually do, and I think part of it's the word drone, which makes it sound like it's off on its own looking for things to strike and kill. And um, <clears throat> one way to think about this is that if you if you imagine building a killing machine and launching it to say, uh, if you see Osama bin Laden, take him out, um, and then setting it off, that's just not realistic within any – uh, not that it couldn't kill a lot of people, uh, but we would be very uncomfortable doing that because of the um, the uncertainty of it. And so you're suggesting that one of the themes of your book is the constraints we put on autonomy, on especially when there's 
uh, risks involved in danger and safety in human life. Exactly. And, uh, you know, uh, if you were to try to program a drone to go find Osama bin Laden, that would come down to a problem of watching people and Face interpreting their behavior. Yeah. And uh, and that's what actually a lot of the Predator and Reaper operators do. They spend a lot more time watching a house and, you know, seeing what people are doing. And it's a very tough problem that they're not all that well trained for is how do you interpret fuzzy images on video for intent, um, but people are still better at it than machines are because there's a context around it and they have context. a sense for, you may need to read the New York Times that morning to understand what the political situation is. Um, and uh, AI has always had trouble with decision-making within a human context. The Predator and Reaper drones, I tell this story in the book, um, again, they're really not drones like you say. Um, the, the Air Force actually banned the term unmanned to talk about those vehicles because they take hundreds of people to actually operate them. And it's actually a problem because they're so labor intensive to operate them. They are remotely operated. They do do different things than manned aircraft do. They're really interesting, and they raise a lot of interesting challenge. But the last thing they are is inhuman killing machines. I guess it's like a bullet. A bullet is doesn't yeah. have a person. It's not a knife thrust or a saber or a spear. It's that's the first killing at a distance. That this is, and it's obviously directed by a person who aims and fires, and things go wrong. We understand that. Yeah, um, and the, you know the bullet is is actually not a bad. You know, it's an extreme case in some way, but it's a it's it's a good illustration because the bullet is is aimed and pointed by a person. It has a certain amount of autonomy once it leaves the barrel and the person doesn't have input anymore, but it's very short in time, very limited. And when bullets go wrong is when they don't go where the person wants them to go, right? So the autonomy is the failure of the system. When bullets do the thing they want them to do is when they do exactly what the person wants. Same thing with the sort of smart bomb idea. When I, I, some of the early thinking on this book goes way back to the first Gulf War in 1991. There were images on TV of smart bombs, you know, selectively destroying uh, targets. And with tremendous said, you know precision, that's- yeah. With tremendous precision, you say all the computers and all the lasers and all that technology, those are not the smart bombs. Those are the dumb bombs. Those are the ones that are going only where we want them to. The smart bombs are the really scary ones where you drop it out of the plane and you don't know where it's going to go, either because of the wind or some other failure of the system. That's what you don't want. So going back to the um, this general question of full autonomy, you just mentioned the New York Times. Yesterday's New York Times – had a feature on driverless cars. Uh, here's a short quote. Uh, Full autonomy is on the horizon. Google's self-driving cars have logged more than a million miles on public roads. Elon Musk of Tesla says he's probably going to have a driverless passenger car by 2018. What's your reaction to that? I, I don't think that's a realistic vision. I think there's any number of ways you can see that there are going to have to be human interventions in driverless cars. Um, there certainly will be all kinds of automated features. Those are a good thing. They'll uh, potentially improve the safety of driving. Um, but to have a car that you drive down the highway at 80 miles an hour and sleep in the trunk while your kids are strapped <laughs> in the back seat, I think we're a long way from that. Um, for are we good a reason, long way again, or no, is it never going to happen? Well, I hesitate to say never, but um, we have 
30 or 40 examples in the book of systems that very smart engineers imagined as being fully autonomous and fully unmanned. And as they moved from the research lab into the field, they gradually got human interventions. Just think about it this way. Are you going to get into a, a driverless car that doesn't have a big red stop button for you to stop it in an emergency? What's it going to feel like when you can see things out in the world that are happening that the car is not recognizing the way that you want them to? Um, but the car is going to be so smart. It's going to be yeah, able okay. to recognize a squirrel from a toddler mm -hmm. who who strays off the sidewalk, and it's going to be pre-programmed to run the squirrel over because I'm mm -hmm. not uh, I'm more important than the squirrel. But the toddler, it'll consult some ethical treatise in real time on Google <laughs> and know whether to run the toddler over versus kill me, depending on yeah. my age, my maybe my contribution to society. In fact, <clears throat> it'll sample the toddler's DNA from a distance, figure out whether right. it's going to be a criminal or not, and know whether to, you know, these are the kind of stories we ask tell driver, ourselves. Ask an owner of a Volkswagen diesel what it's like to feel like the software in your car maybe didn't share the values that you have. Yeah. And how good are car companies and software companies at being transparent in their decision-making? So think about when you get into a car, you make a trade-off between a number of different factors. Take risk and performance. Maybe you're late and you're willing to take a little risk and you drive a little bit more recklessly in order to try to get somewhere fast. Never. Maybe you pick up your kids <laughs> at school and you turn the risk knob down and you say, I'm going to drive a little more conservatively and, and be uh, on the safety side. You make those kind of decisions every time you get into a car. So does practically every autonomy algorithm. They work by optimizing cost functions. What is the balance between fuel efficiency and performance on this particular trip? And very often, those values are in conflict with each other, like performance and fuel efficiency. Yep. Get there fast is not the, the fastest. So um, I think what you really want to see is, is systems that are designed where the user has input into those kind of decisions, um, where um, you, know, you, you have the control. Those decisions are going to get made somewhere. Um, either by a programmer back in a cubicle somewhere, um, or are they going to be made transparently in a way that the user can, can have input into them so that the car drives according to your values and according to your priorities at any given moment? Well, I was thinking about your points about autonomy and how things advance, but not as far as we might think. Uh, I can drive a stick shift. Uh, none of my kids can. Mm -hmm. And it crosses my mind that Maybe their kids won't learn how to drive a car at all. In fact, my I have four children. My last um, child, at least so far, just turned 15. And I wonder, wouldn't it be nice if I could live in that driverless car world and I wouldn't have to teach him how to drive? So, you know, my, my dad taught me how to drive a stick shift. It was an unpleasant experience for both of us. Uh, teaching my three other children how to drive has been a challenge. Uh, it would be great. As to long as... As long as that driverless car works perfectly under all conditions everywhere all the time, right? And there's no question that when you have good bandwidth and you have uh, your nearest cell tower and, you know, the, the sensors are all working at their highest order and the car was inspected last week and there's no ice uh, on the sensors or bird poop on them, um, you ought to be able to have access to great features. Um, but you're really going to have to be able to move in and out of those features. Maybe you're driving away from uh, 
uh, high bandwidth cell links. Maybe you're driving on dirt roads that haven't been mapped. Maybe you're driving in a lot of different circumstances. You need to be able to move in and out of these autonomous uh, modes, and that presents you with the Air France 447 problem, which is a problem we should be working on that we can we can improve on. Um, but it's it's very hard to imagine a world where um, you get in and you have no possibility of having any input into the system. Why would you want to throw away that, that human insight? Well, I guess I, the one, the one that let me rephrase your your point. Obviously, uh, if if that toddler comes off the sidewalk and the car says, uh, "I can't handle this," your turn. That's the Air France problem at an extreme. That's not going to go very well no matter what. I don't care how prepared I am. Uh, there's really no attractive way uh, to deal with that kind of – there's no easy way to think about that handoff. Uh, if it's more, gee, it's kind of a foggy day today or the cell service is mediocre, the tower is mediocre, why don't you drive? That's a different level. But I guess when, I, when you talk about it, given how poorly we drive now – I'd be willing to take a pretty big trade-off of autonomy. I'd be willing, willing to accept some very flawed autonomy rather than letting my 15-year-old uh, you know, drive that car. So I, I, there is a trade-off there. You're suggesting that that trade-off will never be – I think you're suggesting that trade-off will never be attractive enough to give up, to give up full autonomy. And I, th- I think what Google and Tesla and others, and to some extent Uber, are betting on – is that we'll get so close that we'll save so many lives that it'll be uh, it'll be a huge improvement. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's no evidence that that uh, we're going to save lives yet. There may well be, um, but again, we know a lot about accidents. We know a lot about aviation accidents, and we know a lot about car accidents. And it is indeed true that a high proportion of the lives lost uh, and the accidents caused and automobiles are caused by human error. But what we know a lot less about is how people drive under normal circumstances. And um, people are extremely good at sort of smoothing out the rough edges in these systems. The stop sign maybe is knocked over or traffic light isn't working and people have a way to kind of muddle through those situations. And they do that all the time. Again, back to that you know, of commercial airline flights, 10% of them proceed exactly according to plan. That's probably about true of your car trips as well. So, um, again, the claim is not that, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of things you can do with autonomous technology that are going to benefit cars and that you'll certainly want to be able to relax on the highway a little bit and let the car drive. And um, you'll certainly want to uh, um, take advantage of all the sensors and the AI and the different robotic algorithms and and techniques that are being developed in all these different realms. Um, It's just a matter of whether you're going to be sleeping in the trunk or whether you're actually going to have the ability to stay involved in the system and whether you can think about technology that will keep you engaged in the world and expand your experience outside of the car rather than push you back into a, into a, a sort of rarefied cocoon in, into the car with 100% faith in technology that has no possibility of failing. Yeah, we're already somewhat down that road of, of semi-autonomy with, you know, you have collision warnings, you have lane change warnings, and of course that encourages people to text <laughs> or to talk on their phone or do it, eat, 
there's many things people already do that's semi-cocoon-like, but not totally because they are still steering the car. Um, but you suggest that Google's made a mis- mistake, might be to, not the right word, but they, they made a decision, in, at least in their public statements, that they're moving toward complete autonomy. Whether they get there or not, maybe we should be skeptical, but you're suggesting they should have tried a different model that might have been more uh, or maybe that's where they'll, they'll end up. How might that work? What do you, give us a little well, vision think, of that. Well, I think almost all the car companies are, are taking a different approach, right? And, uh, you know, I quote the, the senior senior leadership at BMW in my book saying, you know, people buy our cars because they like to drive them. We'd be crazy to get rid of that part of it. Um, and people like to be in control in different ways. And the automobile companies who are much more familiar with what it means to, to engineer and support and operate a um, uh, life-critical kind of uh, system out on the roads are all taking a much more cautious approach to it. And I think you'll see this play out in the marketplace. The, these companies are all in competition. Um, they're going to be vying with each other for the for the best position. Um, there are certain components of all this, but again, you know, the idea that you'll end up in a car that doesn't have a big red stop button in it, um, I, you know, it's hard to imagine um, uh, that that's actually going to come to pass, that even regulators would allow that. Um, and once you allow a big red stop button, then you've got at least the, the beginnings of a handoff and you have to begin to engineer that kind of handoff. Again, you know, full autonomy is only going to work in that way if it'll work at all with all of the perfect conditions everywhere all the time. And we know that that's not how the world is wired. It's the world is just not fully wired that way yet. That that in itself means you'll be driving in and out of various levels and states of autonomy. That's how it should be. So one argument would be, well, <clears throat> there'll, there'll be a red stop button. There'll be some override possibilities. There'll be some training necessary maybe to get your driver's license still that'll be a little bit different. But of course, you'll be greatly aided by all those systems on board, and maybe that red button gets pushed so rarely that it's just uh, uh, an uninteresting feature. I, I think the question is, for those of us who are overly enthusiastic, which would include me, uh, because of things like Google's self-driving cars, quote, have logged more than a million miles on public roads, in your book, you're very – Critical. None of it in the winter, by yeah, the way. Yeah, so you're, in the book, you're very critical of the – you suggest that a lot of the, quote, evidence that this is – that it's near is exaggerated or um, misleading. Why? Well, to begin with, again, you know, that approach is an approach where you have to solve the problem 100 percent perfectly to do it at all. And that's just generally not been the approach that successful engineering systems have taken. Um and uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think the evidence is exaggerated. I haven't seen evidence that uh, driverless cars have saved lives. Um, they've also been driven heretofore almost exclusively, at least that kind of car, on the, the uh, well-ordered streets in Northern California. And you know, living in Boston just last winter, the <laughs> the 3D topography of the terrain changed by nine feet overnight. Because you get three feet of snow piled up, plowed up into nine-foot snow piles, and you know the directions of the streets change. The very way that people drive was changing rapidly. Um, the Google car still relies on essentially perfect maps in order to make its um, its way through the world, and there's an awful lot of the part of the world that's not 
perfectly mapped yet. Um, and, uh, and maybe never is because maps are always changing in that way. Um, again, I think all the autonomous features are great things. I think they're going to come in. I think there's a good chance that some of them will improve the safety of driving and they may introduce new risks as well. Um, I'm just, you know, it's just hard for you to imagine that the person whose rear end is on the line, who is physically immersed in the environment and sees, has a situational awareness of what's going on, will never ever possibility have, possibly have anything to add to the situation. Um, so and uh, we've we've never seen a system that's worked that way in the field. So, but it would but be. And the question would be: Is is the general experience it's let's say it's 2025 or 10 years from now and we've just recorded the thousandth episode of econ talk uh which would be really exciting mm -hmm. and um we're talking about say uh your your elderly uh well we'll be both of us maybe i don't know how old you are but i'm i'm 60 61 so well, i'll be 71 that's not good let's go so let's talk about my my parents they're 85 now uh, they live in uh, Huntsville, Alabama, and they're they're taking a drive to Memphis this morning, which drives me crazy because uh, it's uh, they drive themselves. <laughs> in their, uh, and in ten years, they'll be nine, God willing, they'll be ninety five and ninety three years old, and they probably won't be able to drive their own car, so they call an Uber to take them to Memphis. And will that Uber have a a person driving them? Will there be a driver or will they just get picked up by the equivalent of an actual drone car that will deliver them? Uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting they'll go through the air. Amazon won't deliver them. Mm -hmm. This is the other other uh, thing we hear that's, that's imminent is that we'll have these things flying through the air autonomously. In 10 years, will old people and non-old people be able to mostly go from point A to point B without having to be able to, you know, surf the web and eat and hang out and chat or will they will they be uh will there be a driver whether it's them or somebody they've hired uh i gotta ask uber about that i guess <laughs> well they're hoping <clears throat> i think that's one of the reasons yeah. they're worth so much money but do you yeah. think that's a feasible is that a, is if you were an engineer for them would you think that's something you'd strive for Did i guess i would say Whatever system they're involved in, they ought to have some ability to intervene if it's not doing what they want it to be doing. No, I think there will be such a system. I agree with you. But for the most part, will most of the time, will we be traveling without any human direct intervention? Well, that just like that plane you said, we've solved that problem, the takeoff and landing in an, un right. an unoccupied. Well, again, so the thesis of the book is that we can learn about that future by looking at what people have had to do in extreme environments. Um, and when you have a $150 million airliner with a very highly certified crew and a very um, highly certified system of maintenance and parts control and all documentation and all that, um, we fly a great deal of those flights under the control of autonomy, and we still feel the need for people to be involved in monitoring and, and um, fairly frequently taking over um, when human lives are at stake. I think that the mythology that the book really tries to um, tease apart is that we're moving from human to remote to autonomous, when actually I think what's happening is those three modes are all converging. And so you will see 
cars that have autonomous features. You will see autonomous driving um, for certain times in certain places for certain applications. Um, but overall, the driving system will be a mix of human and remote and autonomous systems. So in the area of artificial intelligence generally, we've been talking mainly about robotics, but artificial intelligence generally, um, do you think machines are getting smarter? Is there is that a meaningful um, question? I've, we've had guests on this program who think there's a real possibility, and there are very smart people who worry about this. Um, I'm one of the less smart people who's not as worried, but they're very smart people. Uh, Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking, uh, Nick Boster on this program who've suggested that uh, we have to really worry about machines getting so smart they become they become. Uh, sentient or autonomous and pursue their own interests. Uh, are you worried about that? I worry more about them pursuing the interests of the people who design them, um, however smart they may be. Um, again, we have yet to build the machine that's not heavily influenced and by its designers and the things that they built into it. I think you're much more likely to get killed by a poorly designed robot than by an evil thinking robot. Ever? I mean, I agree with you. I'm on your side. <laughs> but what, what do you think is worrying uh, those folks I mentioned? What, what are they – why do they think there's – I mean, my, I'm always thinking, well, can't you just unplug it? Uh, or why would you code it so it would be able to do that to you? I don't – it would seem to me it's hard to – you know, th there's this worry that there's an excitement for some people that it'll just cross this threshold where it'll start, you know, uh, automating itself and grabbing people's kidneys and – Harvesting human beings, I, hard for me to say it without laughing, but but they're actually they they lose sleep over it. Smart people do. What, what are they worried about that we're not worried about? Well, I think that's a legitimate. I mean, like you say, they're smart people. They're legitimately worried about it. As an engineer who's built these systems, I always find them frustratingly dumb. And um, not to say that they won't always be that way, but they're still uh, fairly fragile, kind of brittle solutions and. Most autonomous systems that we make are, when they succeed brilliantly, they succeed brilliantly at a particular well-thought-through kind of narrow set of things, um, and they're very difficult for them to move outside of the context for which we've created them. And um, that's not to say we won't one day, but, but we're, uh, we still have a great deal of time building robots that do things beyond what they were built designed for. Of course, they do get better. Um... You know, one of the interesting insights, I think, of this related to this question is the people who point out that things that we say are examples of artificial intelligence, people dismiss once they get achieved. And they say, yeah, but they can't do this. And you make the point that we get deceived by linearity, uh, that we just assume that this kind of progress. So we go from, uh, you know, voice recognition and then say, well, but that's that's just mechanical. They can't do facial recognition, but they're getting better at that, too. Um but you think the linearity itself is a, is misleading. Why? Uh, I didn't really say that. I mean, I think there's no question that, you know, we've made progress in in a lot of realms that are some of it quite astonishing and that we can do much better with a lot of things than we could do five or even 10 or even five years ago. Um, and one of the things I talk about in the book is, again, robots working within social environments. How do they understand social relationships? Um, how can they observe the people going in and out of a building and try to extract from that um, 
what those people's intentions are and what their plans are and whether those behaviors are normal and abnormal. Well, that depends on what you mean by normal or abnormal. Um, I don't see a whole lot of progress in the computer science world at really understanding social relationships. There are a lot of smart people out there who study the social and the political worlds, um, and there's a great deal of knowledge there. I think there's still a lot of bridging to be done between the AI robotics world and people who really richly understand uh, human behavior and human relationships. And those things all may well be beginning. Um, and when they do begin, I think we're in the, in the, um, there's a lot of, of room there for progress. That's sort of what I argue in the book. Again, you know, if we can understand the social relationships between people and between people and machines, that's the road we want to march down. Um, again, I think some of the rhetoric around full autonomy shows that we're still actually quite primitive in the technical, uh, that the technical community's understanding of the social world is still rather primitive. Well, the non-tech understanding of the social world is pretty primitive too. So <laughs> there, there's nothing to be ashamed of there. Uh, mm -hmm. are, there any, are there any areas where, you know, it's funny, you think about, you know, controlling a, a rover on Mars with a 20-minute with a time delay or some of the incredible applications you talk about in the book. And then down at the other end, you have things where your thermostat learns what kind of temperatures you like and, and you know, very mundane examples of where technology and, and human sentience are, are, are sort of coming together. Are there areas where you think that there's the most potential or, or where it's being done well that, that are exciting to you? Uh, yeah. I mean, again, I think the, the world of robotics and the world of, um, I think the frontier is situating robots and autonomous systems within human environments. And when you say human environments, you include almost anything that's economically valuable and economically productive. And I think there's we're at the beginning of an era where we take these systems that have been engineered for full autonomy or imagined with full autonomy and bring them into the human world and let them respond and react to uh, human systems and human behaviors in entirely new and kind of situated ways, um, that to me is, is, you know, a lot of the elements are there for really great progress in that realm. Um, we're not there yet, but it's a very exciting time in, the, in that dimension. What advice would you give a young person who wants to be part of that evolution and revolution of our relationship with with inanimate objects? Studies computer science and the social sciences at the same time. And do you have any worries about the folks who don't have the skills to do that? A lot of people, one of the themes of your book, which I love, is that even even the smartest technology is the product of human, is human product of human creation. Of course, some people wonder whether, you know, robots and artificial intelligence should be able to innovate uh, autonomously. But, what about folks who uh, struggle to do that, or do you think we can all make a contribution? I mean, I think everybody can make a contribution in their own way, obviously. I think, uh, you know, I've spent my career trying to educate engineers to think about the way their designs are situated within social and political systems, and that's a, a way to design better engineering systems as well as a way to see them be more successful. Um, so... I guess I would come back to an education question. We can educate people in certain ways and we can educate them in other ways. So there are certain ways that I, I prefer to see people educated where, um, you know, that the we move away from 
what people are calling scientism, which is the idea that you can kind of calculate everything about the world in advance and that the user is an idiot and has nothing to add. That's, that's proven to be not the way that successful systems evolve. My guest today has been David Mendel of MIT. His book is Our Robots, Ourselves, Robotics, and the Myth of Autonomy. David, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Great. Thanks. Great conversation. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.